0: Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am editor-in-chief of Quillette. Quillette is where Free Thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself and Canadian editor Jonathan Kaye. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay from the normally calm and peaceful country of Canada. And I use the word normally because seven months ago, Ottawa, Canada's capital, was the scene of a massive three-week protest led by big rig truckers who opposed Canada's cross-border vaccine mandate and a bunch of other things besides. That protest paralyzed the city for weeks, attracted international media attention, divided the country along largely, though not exclusively, partisan lines, then provoked a heavy-handed overreaction from Justin Trudeau's Liberal government, and copycat trucker protests in countries around the world. But in the end, once the police had cleared the truckers out, did it accomplish anything? With me to answer that question is True North journalist Andrew Lawton, who literally wrote the book on the trucker protest. It's called The Freedom Convoy, the inside story of three weeks that shook the world. Here are excerpts from our conversation. As we're going to discuss, a lot of the protesters were motivated by an opposition to vaccine mandates. But some were also opposed to the concept of, of vaccines more generally. Uh, as you know, there were some conspiracy theories going around. You kind of were faced with an existential decision when you wrote this book, whether you were going to be agnostic to some of the more radical elements. There are just a lot of people who want a book like this to reflect the most extreme opposition to vaccines, right?
1: Possibly, but I also don't think that those variations within the convoy demographic, if if you can call it that, the people that supported this thing, I, I don't think they were all that relevant to a lot of the people. I, I did meet genuinely people that were fully vaccinated and against mandates, people that were unvaccinated for medical or religious reasons that were against mandates and people that did have some fairly kooky and conspiratorial beliefs about vaccines and were against vaccine mandates. And, and all of them seemed to pretty much get along, which is why I think this was a fairly unified group. I, I mean, as the book's been out now for a couple of months, I, I've not gotten any criticism from people. People that are are upset that I have not taken a, a critical view of vaccines themselves, and I'm vaccinated myself. So if that is a concern, it's not one that's been put to me, and and it's not really something I, I witnessed either. Just looking at the different people making up this protest.
0: But it sounds like during the actual convoy itself, these tensions did exist, and I'm thinking specifically there was. One statement that was made distancing themselves from this nut Pat king and some of the announcements that he had made, I mean, really crazy stuff and not just about vaccines, but then this guy had to take a statement off the internet, right? Like after a day. So it sounds like there was real tension between call them mainstream anti-mandate protesters and the more conspiratorial elements, no?
1: I think what you're referring to is early on, like the convoy hadn't even got to Ottawa yet. And there was already this brewing controversy about Pat King's role. And And I should say I, I had never heard and I'm, I'd say fairly well connected in conservative media. I had never heard of Pat King before this convoy started. And that's not to say he didn't have an audience and a profile and an influence online, but he he had never come across my radar. And he had really become early on a booster of this convoy and uh, largely. And I I try to take a very fair treatment of him, despite all of the criticism you raise, which I detail in the book, he did promote this thing early on. So you, you can't separate him from the convoy story. But the question comes down to whether he was a leader or an organizer in a meaningful way and and whether he was connected to that core group that I, I think really defined the convoy. And and early on, they realized he was a liability and, and put up this statement saying, he's not with us, we don't support him. And that was Tamara Leach that posted that. And then there was... And I don't know what happened behind the scenes on this, but she ended up pulling that down. And and the best that I've been able to understand is that she really didn't like making enemies. Is that you know as much as she sort of is held up as this villain to certain Canadians, uh, she was someone that really didn't want conflict, and she didn't really want tension, and she didn't want to hurt someone's feelings that had been nice to her that she didn't have any personal ill will towards. And they ended up condemning him for real later on. But yeah, there was a, I I don't even know if tension is the word I would use to describe it. I I think there was a lot of apprehension about how to do this. And, and no one was really a professional organizer or a professional media strategist in, in that so way. So,
0: one of the ironies of this whole convoy protest thing is the idealized figure of the grassroots community protester with a bullhorn rallying people, getting up early, going to bed late, making contacts, is, is a romanticized figure on the progressive side of the spectrum. Tamara Leach seems to fill that idealized role. But what's interesting is, is in the era of Twitter, these kind of people, I'm wondering if they still have a role in the protest movement, because the very fact that they're inclusive, that they're shaking hands with everybody, that they're trying to be nice to everybody, is sort of off message with the Twitter era protest movement, which is you cut people loose if they said something off message like 10 years ago. Like to a certain extent, does this whole experience of the the convoy signal that it's just very hard to do grassroots? political protest in this era, because you're always going to be defined by the biggest liability in your movement?
1: To some extent, yes. I mean, the convoy was really a a Rorschach tests for a lot of people they'd look at it and they'd see in it what they wanted to see you know people would see the the freedom fighters taking their stand against justin trudeau and other people would look and see these are white supremacists troglodyte anti-science insurrectionists or whatever and i think that was largely the government of canada's view on this and and certainly a lot of the mainstream media's view i do think though that there was a an interesting contradiction in the convoy organizers and the convoy members or supporters in that on one hand, you did have this leadership that tried to control the message and and tried to be the face of this. But they also and largely they admitted this, they couldn't really command anyone to do anything they didn't want to do. They didn't have any leverage over any of the individual protesters on the street. So if someone did want to start mouthing off about some uh, particularly offensive or insidious thing they'd be able to, and and no one could really stop them. But I, I don't also think that that really happened. I, I think that the... The weak links, if you will, that people tried to pluck out to delegitimize this thing were people who were largely condemned by the convoy movement and the protesters themselves, whether it was a guy walking through with a Confederate flag and then everyone around him you see on video is saying, get lost. We don't want you here. Or someone who to this day has not been identified, who was photographed with a swastika. Everyone said, whoa, this is we want nothing to well, do the with swastika that.
0: The thing was weird because from what I can tell from these shots, The guy with the swastika was some idiot who was trying to compare Justin Trudeau to a Nazi. Justin Trudeau is absolutely not a Nazi, but these people were using the swastika as a term of abuse, saying, my enemies are so terrible they're like Nazis, which was a stupid thing to say, but they weren't saying, I'm a Nazi. I had never heard of Pat King. I I know very few conservatives who had ever heard of him, let alone actually endorse his idea. I learned about Pat King from the obsessive social media media. Messaging about it on progressive accounts. They seem to have memorized his manifesto, his MOU or whatever it was called. They took that as a authoritative rendering of all
1: the the convoys demands and points of view yeah i should say the the, so the mou was actually from someone else that was from a guy named james botter who runs this group and website called canada unity which again how come i'm confusing that with pat king well they were both involved early on and they both tried to promote this thing and they were both disavowed by convoy organizers early on around the same time Um, the MOU was from James Botter and I I should say this MOU which like purported to do some really crazy thing. Like if enough people signed it, then the Senate of Canada and the Queen's representative in Canada uh, at the time would, you know, manage to get Trudeau out of office. Like it, it made no sense, but it predated the convoy. And I think that's the most important detail. This document's existence predated the convoy by many months. And, uh, and James Botter had been going around trying to sell this thing anywhere he could and had actually gone to Ottawa himself in December to present it to the Senate of Canada, where, uh, you know, they wouldn't let him through the gate. So he he had to like just go to the Canada Post around the corner and, and send it. So this was never a part of the convoy. And I, I think that it, it goes back to that thing. Like a lot of the convoy organizers I, I spoke to, even earlier on before I was writing this book, were like, I just, why is everyone asking me about this, this MOU? Like, what the hell is this? Like, they didn't even know at the time what it was. And you're right, in, in sort of progressive circles and media circles, this was the very essence of the convoy.
0: At one point, you say that Aaron O'Toole, who at that point was the leader of Canada's Conservative Party in opposition, you end your chapter saying, O'Toole would become the convoy movement's only political casualty. And you're referring to the fact that he was sort of dancing on the fence about whether he supported the convoy or not. A position I kind of am sympathetic to, because this was in early days, if the protest had gone amazing in Ottawa, he would have wanted to be associated with it. But if something horrible happened, he would not want to have been on record as saying, oh yeah, I support these guys. Based on the narrative you give us, he was ousted from the Conservative Party leadership because he was not a full-throated supporter of the convoy movement you know there's a lot of very misleading comparisons between canadian conservatives and donald trump in this respect though does the analogy hold up you know within the conservative movement when it comes to this kind of flamboyant protest gesture you have to pick a side you have to go all in on the populism or reject it entirely and o'toole tried to have it both ways and that's one thing you just can't do is is that the state of I'm pl- not
1: even talking about moral purity i think as a matter of of practicality you need to have a side because if not the general presumption that people take is that you're not on their side so all of the people that hated the convoy assumed aaron o'toole was a closet convoy lover and all of the people who actually liked the convoy thought that o'toole was against them so i i think it was a really important point that he had to decide on because a lot of people certainly non-canadians might not remember or have ever known this but when the convoy was gaining steam a lot of the controversy hadn't happened. They were just a, a random group of people that were speaking out against vaccine mandates. And pretty much the entirety of the conservative movement was on the convoy side in that period when the convoy was going to Ottawa. So this is before any borders had been closed, before the protests became more of a permanent encampment in Ottawa. And, and pretty much every conservative that I knew was supportive of this and a lot of non-conservatives and the leader wasn't even saying not even whether or not he supported it he wasn't even saying whether he would meet with them and whether he would sit down and hear their concerns and he could have at least just said i think they're coming to ottawa with a message i want to hear that message he wouldn't even do that
0: and now a word from our sponsor better help okay so the summer is over For a lot of us, it's time to get back to school, or to bring renewed focus to our jobs. And maybe you're asking yourself why you're stuck focusing on lingering problems instead of new solutions. And BetterHelp is here to remind you that a therapist might not just be able to help you feel better and get more out of life, he or she may also be able to help you get out of productive ruts and perform to your potential. And, I can vouch from personal experience that therapy is also great for helping you decide when it's time to launch yourself into a completely new career trajectory altogether. I've been there. If therapy is something you're thinking of, BetterHelp is a particularly convenient and affordable option. It's online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat, letting you choose whether or not you want to see anyone on camera. You get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey, and you can switch therapists at any time. Quillette listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp by going to betterhelp.com slash quillette. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash te And now back to our Quillette podcast. In progressive circles, it became received wisdom that the whole thing was just a cover for white supremacy or whatnot. Which is weird because there were a lot of people who were not white. This is something I didn't know until I read your book. There was an Indigenous leader who gave a speech?
1: Yeah, I tweeted. I don't know if the entire thing is up. I certainly tweeted a clip from it. And I also did a number of interviews with Indigenous people that were there that I I posted and and included in my show. The the one presentation that I refer to in the book was from a, a former... I guess she's a current indigenous clan mother in uh, the North. She's in Yukon territory, if I'm not mistaken. uh, Nolene Villebrunn. And she actually is, uh, she formerly was the, I believe, the Dene National Chief. And I apologize if I get that wrong, but she had a position of leadership in the, the Dene Nation in uh, northern Canada, and she was there. And, and a lot of the people that I spoke to that had indigenous ancestry or, or were from indigenous nations and, and active participants and members of those nations really said that they understood the message of freedom. And that was their core connection to this. And. It, it was surprising at first because you don't often see a lot of crossover between Indigenous and non Indigenous protests outside of protests against oil and gas development. But in this particular case, it made sense because Indigenous people have lower vaccination rates than non Indigenous Canadians, which means they're disproportionately affected by vaccine mandates. And a lot of them have very long standing. Uh, resistance, understandably, to government imposed or a government coerced medical treatment. If you know Canada's indigenous history, you'll understand why that is. So there were a lot of reasons that they came And I found their stories, which should have been, I think, grounds to take a more nuanced view of the convoy, really were absent in the mainstream coverage. She's a former
0: Dene national chief and clan mother from Yellowknife. And let's hear a little bit of what she said. With my heart, with MRC, with our hearts that are up here on this stage, we thank you. Because that's what this movement is about. One heart. And what does that mean? That means love, understanding, acceptance, tolerance. And when we have that... We will respect one another. You quote this great sign. The sign says, fully vaxxed, BIPOC. That means black, indigenous, or person of color. Pro-choice, anti-mandate. This is somebody who certainly doesn't fall into the white supremacist category. I remember there was one scene. It wasn't in Ottawa. It was in, I think, Quebec City. There were people flying the Canadian flag. If you're not from Canada, this won't seem weird at all, because Quebec is part of Canada. If you're from Canada, it will seem weird to see Quebecois protesters Flying the Canadian flag, the foundational divide in Canadian society until 15 minutes ago when we decided it was between white supremacists and everybody else has always been between English and French. There was this weird unifying spirit of this protest where French and English protesters and Indigenous too, put aside their divisions, kind of heartwarming in that respect, I guess, huh?
1: Yeah, those, I mean, those are the three foundational nations in Canada, Indigenous, and within that, you obviously have different Indigenous nations, but Indigenous, English, and French. And I write in the book at some point that I had never in my life before the convoy seen a French uh, Quebec separatist and an Alberta separatist like partying together and hugging, but, but the convoy had that. And it was interesting because a lot of the the sectarianism you see in Canada. Canada. Canada, whether it's along language lines or or ethnic lines or whatever the case is, really, I think, posits that the others are your greatest nemesis. So, you know, French Canada sees English Canada as its greatest nemesis. And I I think that through covid the government gave everyone a a greater villain than whatever they had previously. And, and Quebec just for context here had the most restrict COVID measures in Canada. And I would argue in, you know, probably not quite where Australia and the UK were in some respects, but, but among some of the more serious things in the world, because they had curfews at one point, you couldn't even go into a big box retail store to buy a non-essential thing. If you were unvaccinated, like there was one photo, of a Walmart that went viral, where if you were unvaccinated, you had to like stand in this little vestibule at the beginning at the entry of the store and someone had to go and collect your things for you because heaven forbid an unvaccinated person walks through like a a warehouse sized Walmart. So Quebec really pushed. And they also had... Uh, at one point, the threat, they didn't go through with it, of fining the unvaccinated. So Quebec really did push people to the brink. And I, I think that made language concerns look a lot more moot uh, compared to what people were facing in the here and now with their government.
0: So just one story. As you may know, I, I grew up in Montreal, in Quebec, and my my sister and my parents still live there. There was one point where I was, I think, after nine or 10 o'clock, like you couldn't go out. There was a curfew, uh, unless it was to walk your dog. And it was the story... A woman put a leash around her boyfriend's neck, said he identified as a dog, <laughs> which is a pretty good kind ruse, but they got arrested anyway. And and that's, <laughs> <laughs> it's, as performance art, it's pretty fantastic. But let's talk a little bit about the roots of the protest. One of the critiques of this, the protest, was that the federal government, the target of the protest, doesn't actually control that much in regard to health. In Canada, it's the provinces that control health to a large extent. Aside from the border stuff... Are the critics of the protest accurate that it was weird to target the federal government when it had relatively little control over COVID response?
1: That was one of the more pervasive criticisms. The, you know, why are you even there? Most of your grievances are with provincial governments Line, But I I didn't find it was particularly accurate. For, for two reasons. I, I mean, I should say, you go back to January, February 2022, and, and yes, the vaccine passports are the products of provincial governments. Uh, provincial workforce restrictions are the products of provincial governments. Masking requirements were mostly the products of provincial governments. But the federal government also set the tone for a lot of this. And more importantly, Justin Trudeau personally did. And, and a lot of people took issue with the federal government's uh, role in this because Justin Trudeau had said some just absolutely terrible things about unvaccinated people. He talked about them during the last election campaign in the fall as being this group of misogynists and extremists and racists. And he also, when the convoy was on its way to Ottawa, called uh, everyone in it a fringe minority with unacceptable views. And the federal government in Canada had, at the time, a vaccine mandate for air and rail travel. So you couldn't get on a plane or get on a train unless you were vaccinated. So I think if the bulk of the restrictions that you encountered on a day-to-day basis were provincial, and your point was that, absolutely, that's accurate. But I don't think the federal government gets a pass in this. And as we saw, uh, the federal mandates lasted far longer than provincial mandates did, which, generally speaking, were lifted in in some form uh, no later than April, May. But the federal mandates went right up until the very end of September. So
0: one of the interesting subplots here is that you had all of these Ottawa-based journalists who saw these big trucks and kind of had a freak out because to them, a truck should be a small thing that delivers Amazon packages. Like at one point when one of the trucks was used as a crane... There was a reporter who thought it was a wrecking ball and the guy was going to like go around (laughs) like truckasaurus, like destroying buildings.
1: Yeah, she saw the the little like cannonball size weight that was hanging from the crane and thought that was a wrecking ball. And it was like it would be like the world's smallest wrecking ball. (laughs) And the reason I should just point out that that crane was there and what it was holding was a Canadian flag. That was why the crane was extended. There was a Canadian flag hanging from the cable, but she uh, evidently saw the little cannonball and thought that it was about to just, you know, start tearing down uh, Justin Trudeau's office six inches at a time.
0: I'm channeling Zoolander says, what is this, a wrecking ball for ants?
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, it, she, she did apologize, but I, I think it, it speaks to the fact that they were they they were assuming the worst. Right. And they, in the process, revealed just a complete disconnect from a lot of the working class people that were making up this protest.
0: You say they expected the worst. I think it's important to mention that this protest happened about a year after the January 6th riot in Washington at the Capitol, which was a legitimately shocking and horrible thing. Again, if you don't live in Canada, you maybe you can't know this, but the Canadian political class has this really tortured relationship with American political news. We just kind of assume that whatever happens in the United States is going to happen in Canada, even though we have two completely different political cultures. And so I remember when the convoy was heading to Ottawa, you had liberals, including one liberal MP, kind of losing their minds and saying it's going to be Charlottesville. It wasn't entirely crazy that There was going to be some kind of January sixth capital thing. Do you think there was some grain of truth at the time to that?
1: At the time, no. I I think that the longer it went on, because remember, at the time, a lot of people didn't know this was going to be this weeks long thing. A lot of people just assumed they'd get to Ottawa, they'd drive around, they'd make some noise. Well, the police
0: said that the police. So I remember a police statement. I mean, this was, among other things, a, a huge intelligence failure among police. In Ottawa, you had the police saying, yeah, this could go on for a long time. They might still be here by Tuesday. Like their worst case prediction was that they'll be here for four days.
1: Yeah. And and I should say that when police made that comment, one of the things when I was researching the book that I did is, is go back to the beginning and try to watch all of the videos that people in the convoy had put out, uh, certainly the main people, and read the Facebook and Twitter posts. And it was interesting how transparent they were in their videos, which were all public. They were posted on their public Facebook page about the fact that they were going to stay there indefinitely so when police were saying that they're going to be gone by Tuesday it means that they really weren't paying attention or they didn't believe them so the organizers were always very transparent that we're going to go we're going to park and we're going to have at it and and that first weekend uh some of the convoy people held a a mini press conference and you know jokingly but there was some truth to it said well you know eventually the weather's going to get warmer and then it's going to be even easier for us to to stick around so they were in it for the Long haul, police didn't want to go in there and be subject to what has always been the case in Canada, which is this uh, profound level of scrutiny if they uh, start cracking skulls to break up a protest. I think in Canada, the G20 summit from some years ago still has, I think, a lot of baggage to it for police. And the chief of the Ottawa Police Service at the time, who is deposed midway through the convoy, even said that this needs a political solution, not a policing (laughs) solution. Let's be careful. So when you say
0: deposed, they didn't destroy his office with a wrecking ball in March. No, no,
1: yeah, not by a coup, but <laughs> yeah. but he was uh, politi- he was de- de- he was forced to resign midway through, yeah.
0: Through normal human resources channels, right? I just, and I say that because there are people who use the language of insurrection
1: with this stuff. Yeah, that's fair. But but he had said that it needs a political solution and not a policing solution. And I think he was really calling on the government to uh, get in there and fix this so that they couldn't just look at the police and blame them if some crackdown went wrong.
0: Among defense of the convoy, people say, oh my god, Like there was this fascistic police reaction, cops on horseback and a woman was knocked over and all this stuff. I kind of don't buy that. By the standards of police actions to get rid of thousands of people, I thought the police did what they had to do. And I also thought the police had the right to do that a week into the protest. I think people have a right to protest, but paralyzing a downtown for more than a few days, the police had every right to go in there and take them out. I don't know if you agree with that.
1: Well, I think there were certainly individual issues when you looked at the crackdown that final weekend. Like, for example, the use of uh, police on horseback, which is already a bit contentious, I don't think was done particularly well in that moment. And also uh, some of the use of You know, chemical irritants. I mean, I myself just covering this got a pepper sprayed and and I wasn't even at that immediate immediately at that front line when it happened. So I I think there were some issues, but I I also take it a step back and and look at it in the broader context. If the, the objective is for police to remove protesters, then I think you're right that it's a fairly standard practice. I think if we're talking about the continuum of what could be done about this thing, I go back to not even meeting with anyone from the government and say, surely at the continuum, a conversation would come before the Emergencies Act and horseback police and uh, pepper spray and tear gas. Surely a conversation comes at some point before that. And I I think that it was a weird and I almost got whiplash looking at it doing nothing, 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 nothing. And then the most extreme response you can. And I I think that's the problem. So
0: it wasn't quite Nothing. I mean, Justin Trudeau's response was interesting. He spent most of the three weeks kind of pouting and scowling and letting others keep abuse on them. He seemed to just kind of hope it would go away. And then when it didn't, he overreacted and invoked the Emergencies Act, which is legislation, its successor legislation to legislation that was originally passed to deal with things like real insurgencies, like the FLQ terroristic uprising in Quebec in the 1970s, even people who opposed the convoy thought it was an overreaction. And and he was subsequently embarrassed by members of his own party when the Senate uh, looked like it was going to stall to justify the continued use of the Emergencies Act. Do you think this is one of those incidents that, like, there were no political winners? Like, O'Toole lost... The convoy ended up being unpopular. Trudeau ended up looking petulant and indecisive and then overreacted. Is that the case? There was just no winners here?
1: Well, I think the new leader of the Conservatives, Pierre Polyev, was undoubtedly a winner. I mean, he was one of the Conservative MPs that broke ranks when Aaron O'Toole wouldn't take a stand, and he did go and meet with the truckers and shake hands with them. And you had other Conservative MPs that were out serving them coffee and taking photos with them. And even O'Toole's deputy leader, a woman by the name of, of Candace Bergen, put out a statement of support for the convoy. At
0: the time, Bergen was a bigger story than Polyev in terms of breaking ranks, no?
1: bigger because she was deputy leader. But I, I think Pierre Polyev had a star power to it. And if you looked at the turnout of his uh, rallies when he was seeking the leadership of the party, there was a lot of crossover between those people and convoy supporters. I, I'm not saying that he was a mastermind behind this all, but I do think that he benefited from it uh, in the sense of where the Conservative Party went throughout the convoy. So, I, But again, I think generally your point is right, that of the players that were in positions of leadership then, no real political winner.
0: The, the issue of how this convoy was financed is, is a complicated one, and it occupies a big part of your book. I, I think a lot of Canadians didn't realize how many heavy-handed measures... The federal government had at its disposal to find and prevent and punish any kind of financial transaction using electronic means in Canada. I actually went out and opened a crypto account. Part of the response that Trudeau and his team made was to make it unlawful to donate to a political cause that they didn't like. I completely think it's ridiculous to call Trudeau and the liberals fascists. But for me, that was a turning point when I said, like, this, this, there's something not right about this. And... Do you think the next time something like this happens, organizers, they'll just completely bypass GoFundMe and, and stuff like that, that the liberals can get their hands on or at least can can influence it indirectly and just go straight to crypto?
1: I, I think in large part they will. And one thing I, I would point out about this, and I, and I would encourage people, if you're interested in the financing, it was very complex and it had a lot of twists and turns. So uh, I do go into it in the book and I, I won't rehash all of it now. But one of the interesting things is that the way the orders the government gave were worded, they could have gone after, you know, Gladys Pippins, who donated five dollars. They gave themselves the authority to freeze the bank account of anyone who gave any support of any size for any reason to the convoy or even to something adjacent to the convoy. And if we look at it retrospectively, the government didn't freeze that many bank accounts. There were a couple hundred accounts, not a huge number of people. And I, But I'm, just to
0: be clear, they didn't have to freeze any. It was the threat. Yes. And what's even more reprehensible than what the government did, you had these media trolls in, in Canada, including the former right-hand man to Justin Trudeau, Gerald Butts, cheerleading the doxing mm-hmm. of people because there was somebody not within the government, but there was somebody who basically got their hands on, uh, on at least one of the donor lists, published it. Yeah.
1: Who hacked it and then published it. A completely
0: yeah. reprehensible act. And then you had these public figures cheering it on and you had newspapers in Toronto gleefully going after people who are health workers. and
1: Yeah, going through the list and, and, and demanding they account for why they donated and publishing their names.
0: Toronto Star did this and I noticed they stopped pretty abruptly when people were just absolutely disgusted by it. But the fact that this was a thing going after people because they had made donations to an active political protest, I tell people, I said, if you're on the political left and there's a conservative government in power, and they're going to try and find out, you know, you gave money to Antifa, you gave money to some environmental group that staged a sit-in or something like that. Are are you cool with that? From a civil libertarian point of view, there's a lot of elements of concern here, right?
1: Yeah. And you're right that the chilling effect was the real risk because at the time the government could have frozen so many more accounts. And just to as an example, I worked with and work for a conservative-leaning media outlet called True North, which is donor-supported. I was getting emails from people that were saying, "I, I don't. You cover the convoy. For all I know, if I donate to you, my accounts being frozen." And uh, you know, I wanted to say it was pretty paranoid, but I also was looking at the fact that six months earlier, I would have been called a conspiracy theorist if I suggested that Justin Trudeau was going to freeze any bank accounts of political critics and of people involved in a protest. So it was significant. And I think it was actually more directly relevant to the government and desired by the government than the policing powers, which, as we saw, didn't actually really come from the Emergencies Act. The police could have done what they did with normal policing, but the freezing of bank accounts, that's where that uh, emergency legislation you talked about kicked in.
0: So I spent a lot of time on social media pointing out the sometimes bizarre posturing and weirdness that takes place in Canadian media. And your book is full of criticism of the Canadian media. But you do highlight, you say, two standout examples. And here you're talking about mainstream media figures who covered the convoy protest were Evan Solomon of CTV, so CTV is a major television network here, and Sean O'Shea of Global News, which is a left-leaning media outlet. Tell me why you singled them out for praise.
1: So the one big problem is that in downtown Ottawa, you've got a bunch of these news outlets uh, that have their parliamentary bureaus, and there was a lot of coverage that was taking place by looking out the window, at looking down at the street, and sort of seeing what was happening there, and. And then writing about it. And when the journalists did go out, they were so fearful. They would go out in these like four person crews where you'd have the the on camera talent, the cameraman, you'd have a producer, you'd also have some big beefy bodyguard sometimes, too. And, and I should say that there was a lot of abuse and harassment that uh, reporters that went out were subjected to. And I, I'm not I'm not defending that and I'm not denying it. Evan and Sean, they went out Almost every day, they talk to people nonstop. And when the abuse started, they sat there and took it and they talked to these people and didn't necessarily win them over, but some they did. And I thought that was exactly what we need more of in society, which is that these people that are clearly on opposite sides of some issue, whether it's vaccine mandates, the role of the media or whatever, but they were not just hiding from each other. And they were not just immediately flocking towards this siloing effect. And, and so you had people that had their criticisms aired and they were posted. And I thought that was a particularly exceptional example, even if the end result wasn't uh, them seeing eye to eye on what media should have done in this, which is actually talk to these people and understand who they are.
0: Another standout journalist, I don't agree with her on everything, but I thought she did a fantastic job on this one Rupa Subramania. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could talk a little bit about this, because I'm pretty sure you mentioned Rupa here. Yes. Rupa is, among other things, a good photographer. And I think her work really resonated on social media and otherwise, and at the National Post, because she went around letting picture replace a thousand words. Did, Did you meet her during the protest?
1: I did. And I had actually, I had met her. I'd spoken to her online before, but I'd never met her in person. And we met for the first time at the convoy. And I ended up seeing her pretty much every day that I was there because she, who lives in Ottawa, would make a point of just walking around. And she's not a tall woman. She talks about how she'd ever felt unsafe, even though these were supposedly white supremacists. And, and she just asked people who they were. And it was funny because I, I would uh, find this really good story. I'd interview someone and this was really great. And then I'd be telling her, oh, yeah, I interviewed so-and-so who said this. And she'd be like, oh, yeah, Chuck in the red truck. Yeah, I talked to him like three weeks ago. And I said, oh, well, there There goes my story. And She did a a tremendous job and and she doesn't even identify as a journalist. I mean, she's an economist by trade. She's a columnist. She's triple vaccinated. She was a year ago supportive of vaccine mandates and vaccine passports. But she saw that there was this huge gulf between what was happening on the ground and what she was seeing reported about. And she went and did something about it and, and did some absolutely fantastic work there.
0: Toward the end of the book, you talk about how these protests inspired copycat protests all over the world. (laughs) You have a great line here, you say. The phrase Canada-style protest, possibly never uttered before in world history, appeared in 80 news articles in February. Has protesting now become part of the Canadian brand, along with being sanctimonious and earnest and apologetic?
1: It may. I mean, whether it will endure beyond 2022, I, I don't know. And I should say that none of the copycat protests had the effect in their respective countries that the convoy protest did in Canada. But you had convoy to Canberra. You had a convoy to Washington, D.C. You had a convoy to Brussels. You had a convoy to Paris. And interestingly enough, the other countries, you could tell, were very fearful of the Canadian example taking hold. There was this one video that I saw in Paris uh, which had basically banned cars from even stopping on the road where this car this car had stopped and within seconds police had smashed the window and were arresting the driver. So
0: it's an insurgency. Quick, they're going to overthrow the government. Yeah, here.
1: other countries were like I we, we looking at Canada being like okay, we don't want it, we can't handle it that way. So they sort of overcorrected. But I should also say a lot of these countries had already had Large anti-mandate, anti-lockdown protests previously. I mean, Australia had some large ones. The UK did. The US certainly did. So, in the Canadian context, this was the first time there was a major unified uprising against the the COVID policies of the country. But, but absolutely, certainly the tactic was picked up. Elsewhere. Yeah, and
0: by the way, I, I think it's a little weird because if you look at the history of protests, say in France, I mean, it seems every summer, there's a bunch of farmers clogging up the highways there with their trucks protesting, I don't know, like the low prices of baguette or whatever. And I don't know how we got wrapped with this thing. We kind of stole this from, from the French, didn't we?
1: Yeah, and there had actually been in August an Australian convoy protest. Now, it wasn't a convoy protest that went to the capital and stopped there. It only lasted a day or two, But but even that original idea had sort of been plucked out of something that had happened elsewhere. So I guess that's the true Canadian story here is that we've still imported, even our Canadian style protest was imported from another country.
0: Andrew Lawton is the author of The Freedom Convoy, the inside story of three weeks that shook the world, published by Sutherland House. He's also a journalist at True North, and you can read more of his work at his substack, Andrew Lawton. Thank you so much for joining the Quillette podcast.
1: Hey, great to talk to you, John. Thank you. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon
0: page. That's patreon.com forward slash